All right, fellas, what are your favorite tropes and least favorite tropes? Uh, my favorite and least favorite trope, I have a, a tricky answer for you, Jake. Chekhov's oh. gun, uh, which for the non, oh. non-geeks in the audience, that means um, anytime there is a gun shown on screen in a movie or whatever, then that gun must be used before the end of the film. Famously, Gremlins does this. There's just a shot where there's like a Winchester rifle over the fireplace. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and the first time I saw that as an adult, because, you know, I didn't get to watch R-rated movies as a kid. I was like, they're going to fire that gun. Gremlins is R? Um, I don't. Okay. You know what? Gremlins is not an R, but it was too Uh-oh. spooky for my very conservative. <laughs> yes. Fair, fair. It is quite. Spooky. And also I have a bunch of much younger siblings who were like, would definitely be sleeping in my parents' bed. So that probably was equally uh, a consideration. Hey, Gremlins, they're, they're, hey, they're frightening. <laughs> anyway. Uh, so yeah, Chekhov's gun is both because I think on one hand, um, it is kind of a funny payoff when you're like, Oh, like they're going to use that. I can't wait to, for them to use the super laser cannon that the scientist discovered on mars um and then you're like also like if they don't use it then i will be disappointed so it's um it's a a blade that cuts in both directions okay so i i would i agree with you that it cuts in both directions but i would say using chekhov's gun in DD is like super effective because yeah yeah when so you know there's like the uh genre of like oh murder mystery where there's like either Chekhov's gun or if it isn't used, it's a red herring. Mm. But in Dungeons and Dragons, when you're the dungeon master, all every single Chekhov's gun and red herring exists in a state of flux. <laughs> so that like, you know, it's like what, what do you call it? The quantum ogre or whatever, where <laughs> like if, you know, you, you present all of these Chekhov's guns and all at the end of the game, at the end of the campaign, any Chekhov's gun that was not used was therefore a red herring where mm. every one that was used was a Chekhov's gun. Mm. So I feel like it does have this kind of uh, more expected effectiveness in like role playing games. Yeah, I agree with that. It's um, It's almost like. A trope is a terrible thing to waste in D&D just because on one yes. hand, you never know when, when one session will be your last, you know, RIP my campaign. Um, but oh. also players are looking for that kind of familiar, um, a little bit predictable storytelling. Like, mm. um, True. like we might call it the J.J. Abrams school of just like punchy stories. Like I yeah. want that to happen because that's fun. Yeah. Well, speaking of J.J. Abrams, I loathe the chosen one trope because it is just this like, I don't know, it leans into everything I hate about storytelling of like the divine blood and the, oh, this person has to do this thing because their father was this important thing that, and it has to go through the bloodline. And it's, it's really what bums me out about like JJ Abrams whole thing of the star Wars universe about like, in the end, it's not about choosing to be a hero. It's about your midichlorian count of who's mm. your parents and your bloodline. And, oh, it just, like, in general, the huge chosen one uh, trope can work good. And it can work good in D&D. But I think in overall storytelling, like, I like when all the characters are deciding to 
be heroes and are thrust into adventure as opposed to like, oh, I am required to do this because me puppy was the king. I, I just, I don't know. I, I like it um, more when it's just more choice, not this uh, kind of like, this person is destined to save the world. David? Um, I, I don't know what the terminology is for this trope, but I don't know if you've ever seen those episodes of TV shows where it's, it's just a bunch of flashbacks and like a little bit of commentary and nothing really happens. Bo- uh, is it called bottle episodes? It's not bottle episodes because it's, it's, it's like, it's basically when they say like, remember that time when we did this and it just like flashes back to something like you had previously seen in the TV show. So it's like, rerun. it's like a rerun, but like a new episode and it's the most frustrating yeah. thing. Don't they, don't they do that? They call it like bottle, like bottleneck episodes where like they're like stuck in an elevator and remembering their like good time. No, bottle episode is, uh, maybe it is. Maybe that's what it is. It might, that might be what a bottle episode is. I just remember like the only, the only way that, or the only show to ever like subvert that was community because whenever they had to do yeah. like flashback, they'd always do new stuff. So it's just like, yeah. oh. And they blew so much of, apparently they blew so much of NBC's budget doing that. <laughs> Which is great. I love it. But um, yeah, I guess, I guess just like flashback exposition is just not my, uh. Or, or, or I guess another way of putting it is like, uh, like when the when the heroes are in like a tough spot, and then you know, someone that they previously talked to earlier just like comes in and rescues them. Like, oh, it's Meatball Guy. He's here to save the day. Like, uh, oh, hard disagree. <laughs> you in like D&D? that? Yeah, dude. Yeah, I, dude, I just feel D&D? like it's a, it's an easy cop out to like a problem. Like, oh, agree. You guys agreed. failed. It like, is. Now this guy is here to save it is. you. It's uh, David. It, it's the bread salesman. Everything you're who saying you is right, from. but I have I done it over and over. And the amount of cheers, the decibels of cheers of my my groups, being delighted that somebody they made friends with in a previous oh game gosh. is coming to help. Oh, it is I, always I, a delight. I just I just think it's an easy cop out to like an answer. <laughs> like it oh, is, you guys are stuck. I can't. <laughs> I can't. I can't figure out a way works. to like. I know it works, but that's why I hate it. Because it's like, oh, this guy just happens to be here. Like, let's just oh, hand wave you tropes. <laughs> welcome to tropes. So I guess that, that's that's my my least favorite trope. <laughs> welcome to Vox Arcana. I'm William. I'm Jake. I'm David. And this is a podcast about tabletop RPGs, game design, and advice for all game masters. This is episode 67, Tropes. What are tropes? tropes. What oh, are man. tropes? So Webster's Dictionary defines tropes. <laughs> so, okay. I, a I long have, piece I, of I, fabric I, woven together for strength. Is that really what it means? No, that's <laughs> ropes. <laughs> 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 all right, we're all right. done. Shut the fuck up. I'm out of here. <laughs> I'm gonna use that whole that rope and hang myself now. <laughs> I thought there was a different. Oh my god. Okay, so <laughs> you so fool. I, I You've know. fallen for it again. <laughs> so tropes are something. Uh, if you guys have listened to any episode of this podcast, um, I, I've known. Uh, I, I've actually seen several posts on Twitter to say, "Hey, if you guys really want to have a good time, listen to a Vox Arcana episode." And whenever Jake says trope. 
take a shot. Um, <laughs> and I am a a big proponent of strengthening your liver, so uh, I would recommend doing that drinking game. Um, but I'm a f- I'm a big fan of tropes, and mm. so tropes are similar to cliches, but they they aren't entirely a cliche. Um, so this is from my favorite website ever of all time. And if you go to this website, you'll be sucked in oh, to true. the black hole that is tbtropes.com. Do you love but having this is 20 how... open tabs? You're going to love yes. tbtropes. Yes. So this is how tbtropes.com describes a uh, trope. They may be brand new but seem trite and hackneyed. They may be thousands of years old but seem fresh and new. They are not bad. They are not good. Tropes are merely tools that the creator of a work of art uses to express their ideas to the audience. It's pretty much impossible to create any story without tropes. And and so the way I think of tropes uh, in a metaphor is basically like for rock climbing. Tropes are handholds. And so when you have a beginning rock climber looking at a wall... In order for them to have the most fun, you want to have a lot of handholds. Mm-hmm. And so you would allow this, this obviously a child or someone who is, who is not, not good at rock climbing, having the most handholds would be better for them to get to the top, right? And that's what a trope is. They're little things that allow you to get to uh, the, the conclusion of a story. And so... But if you look at a bunch of people who are exceptionally good at rock climbing, they're going to be bored climbing up a rock face that has just, a, you know, a million different handholds on them. Um, and so, in my opinion, tropes should be used generously with people who are less familiar with the genre, and they should be used sparingly for people who are more familiar with the genre. Um, because tropes give an aura of certainty, and so because of that... If you have players that are more younger, more haven't played D&D as much, haven't been involved in a fantasy genre as much, whatever, uh, these tropes are going to be helpful handholds for them to understand the world they're in. Whereas with a player that's more experienced, you can kind of let them go more freely and they can be more comfortable in a more alien world without as many tropes. Hmm. What do you guys think? That's just my weird, broad... I think that is such a, a, a clear and concise visualization of tropes. I was going to be more abstract with my, de- with my definition, but I just I'll, I'll use yours now because that's fantastic. Um, as far as like the simplicity of using tropes, um, and I feel like this is the thesis of the episode is like how you use them depends on the sophistication of your players. As we mm-hmm. saw in something like, um, and maybe we'll talk about this more later, the subversion of tropes. Um, sometimes people don't want tropes to be subverted. Let, look at uh, Star Wars The Last Jedi, which just, True. Yeah. He, he set up so many shots, let's say. Um, the path up the wall was clear, and he went the opposite way um, yep. every time. And people hate that, Like, or as far as normal audiences go. The average audience goer hates it. Some Star Wars fans, like myself and a few others, um, thought that it was probably the best of the three garbage new Star Wars movies, but that's a different episode. Agreed. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, it's the same thing with Game of Thrones. Like the, like the, I think D and D get a lot of criticism for subverting our expectations of having a, a good final season. 
<laughs> the trope of a good finish. Well, was, uh... <laughs> well, see, they almost subverted a subversion because all of Game of Thrones was a subversion of this high fantasy. Yeah, um, that's true. Like uh, Lord of the Rings style yeah. fantasy universe. And so they're like, oh, we have plagues and people dying you know, out of nowhere and assassinations and, and then it you just know, takes a U-turn all the stuff that back to fantasy. Yeah, and then exactly. And that, so it was almost a, a reversion, I guess, Ugh. to a fantasy. I would say more like revulsion. A regression. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so by the end, it kind of reverted to, uh, yeah, I don't want to, well, I mean, we can spoil it. It's, it's bad. Spoilers. It's like weird kind of like, faux republic style uh (laughs) heroes and villains black and white when the entire show was this subversion of high fantasy and gray morality throughout so Uh, yeah you brought an army and we brought a dragon okay uh, welcome to uh fox arcana the episode where we complain about tropes in entertainment (laughs) (laughs) Uh, true (laughs) I mean, but but the bottom line is, uh, for a dungeon master, tropes are tools. They mm-hmm. are not like inherently good. They are not inherently evil. They are something you use, especially to ground a setting, right? Like you want to establish what your world is. Um, and and I would say that tropes are very much tied to the tone of your world. Right. Yeah. Um, if someone is is walking into your capital and there are people being crucified um, and there are uh, women being uh, whipped and are running away and they're saying, like, oh, be gone, harlot, prostitute. Right. All of this stuff adds to the aura of like, OK, this this capital might be very religious, might be very conservative, um, might be very violent. Um all of these things are tied to like the tone and the tropes. Tropes are almost these handholds that you use to establish your tone. Yeah, um, they're like these um, like meta consistent ideas that you can pull from that are like um, like a familiar like um, word that you can use to describe something. Because it's if you if you want to like tell a story. And you don't provide anything that the audience is familiar with, um, then you know you're not going to be you're not going to have an engaged listeners or players. So if you start to use these familiar concepts and say, "Oh, it's kind of like this," but you know you give that them into you give it to them in this um, in the world, and you don't necessarily say it's you know it's like it's like Lord of the Rings. You just kind of show them something that's similar to you know Lord of the Rings, then that can kind of usher them into um, your world and kind of get an idea of what it's like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think in, in the end, it's, it's like a, a shorthand. It's exactly. A way of yeah. Like, I don't know if you've heard um, the difference between beige prose and purple prose. <laughs> yeah. Where beige prose, it's like very to the point, like, okay, there's this in the room, there's this in the room and there's this in the room. And the guy walks in and, and does this. It's it's very much leaves all of it up into the imagination, like the theater of the mind of the reader. Whereas purple prose goes on and on and on about the color of the drapes and the temperature of the room 
and just just excruciatingly detailed um, description of the world around you. Um, and tropes are a way of, of kind of bypassing that purple prose and, and packing it up into a package and giving the player like, oh, this is like, uh, it's like that weird city in, in the Aquaman movie. Or like, oh, this is like, um, oh, 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 like, like this thing that you're, this MacGuffin you're after, it, which is already a trope in and of itself. This MacGuffin you're after is kind of like, you know, Voldemort, um, you know, doing the soul splitting thing. And like, that, that, that's like a horcrux. Yeah, it's this, this weird guy. grail that gives like, eternal life when you drink out of it or something. Yeah. It's lost yeah, by I'll, this famous knight. Like, yeah. yeah. And, and a lot of it is cringe when we're using it that way. But exactly, yeah. it is a shorthand for like, okay, especially if the players aren't getting it. Like you give kind of a description of the room. You go, oh, it's, it's like this. And, well, I, I think, and I think it will the trope, give them something to hold on to. I think the, the most important part about the trope is that it's not like you're not ex- acknowledging it in like a meta way. You're, you're kind of like using it to tell an idea. Like you, you never like ideally in a, in a and D game, you never want to like have to mention like, Oh, this is like that dragon in Lord of the Rings. Like you just describe it in a way that evokes that idea from them. Like you're, you're kind of like leading them to that conclusion without actually like telling them like, this is the dragon from Lord of the Rings, and I just really want to play in the Lord of the Rings world. Like that—that's essentially sure. like what you're. I, I but, think what, what but, a good trope does. Well, yeah, a, a good trope does do that, but a trope can also offer like a handhold if, if someone is falling, as in like, exactly, yeah. wait, I don't get it. What does this room look like? And you'd be like, Ugh. and you'd show a picture of like a room from a piece of pop culture, and it's yeah. like, oh, okay, okay, I get it. And then it starts to click, yeah. Hopefully we've now defined tropes well enough um, in the abstract, but I want to get specific. So um, here's an example of a trope that is very common, and um, and I'll let you guys kind of play around with uh, with sort of changing it and, and altering expectations. So here's here's my trope: vampires are evil creatures who drink blood and are harmed by sunlight. Very predictable. Yeah, that that is oh, essentially yeah. like a trope played straight. Like that is a most everyone playing Dungeons and Dragons or any fantasy uh, tabletop role-playing game would recognize that trope in the Western world. Oh yeah. As soon as somebody says, Oh, there's vampires here. Like there, it's almost like a loaded um, concept where like already we yes. are, we have capes and bats and castles and fog and like, you already have lot. like an assumed like cultural definition, like in your mind uh-huh. that everyone has. Exactly. Because they're just yep. so, like, prolific within, you know, culture. Which is, that's the strength of the trope, yeah. Yes. So what? how do we downplay that? So, okay, so an example what of, What do you like, mean by downplay? Down, what, you have, okay, so this is, okay, this is me being a nerd of tvtropes.com. Uh, um, there are all sorts of ways to mess with tropes, and doing so can lead to all sorts of consequences, so... For like for this for like for vampires, um, if you downplay that of you know we all know what a vampire is, but like a downplayed vampire trope could be like okay vampires are uh, not necessarily evil, and in fact maybe like half the population is a vampire. Ah, uh, the uh, and so the dritz uh, um, issue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so so the initial thing of like oh vampires are the scary evil villain. 
that we need to watch out for is suddenly downplay when it's like, oh, half the population is vampires and, uh, you know, maybe they're, it's more gray morality. They're not necessarily bad. Mm. Um, there was a movie about this, uh, had Ethan Hawke, I forget what it was called. Um, Willem Dafoe was in it and it's a far future where vampires are the majority, uh, species, I guess, farming humans like blood bags. Um, but of course, oh, I think you can Google it. Look at Willem Dafoe vampire movie. You'll probably find it. Um, but it, it played it where now you have division amongst vampires and there are good and bad and gray, let's say. Um, so yeah, it was a twist on a trope, you might say. Yeah. The, the movie is called Daybreakers. Daybreakers. Which I That's recommend watching exactly one time. <laughs> That's all you need. Um, as far as subverting the trope, um, what comes to mind immediately is Twilight, where the vampires are actually the good guys and they're not like creepy blood-sucking weirdos i mean they they kind of were um but you know they're they're protecting the world against the the scourge of uh actually i i just right now ran out of everything i know about twilight so um how else can you <laughs> subvert <good>. the <laughs> the trope no so I like mean, you can easily like subvert or defy a trope by basically making it the opposite like um vampires actually like, give oh, you blood through Pushing it into your neck. <laughs> I mean, that's an extreme <laughs> so opposite. But like, I I can think of I can think of an opposite of like a, a truly defied vampire trope of like, oh, every hero in our universe is a vampire, and the, like all of our paladins are vampires, and like in order to play in my D and D game, you you're required to be a vampire because Ugh, those are I the wouldn't heroes. even play. <laughs> but like that is an example of subverting defying a trope um to the point of like the opposite of this like oh crap vampires are evil and they're gonna eat me and i'm scared um it, it, it's this is actually more common in like these very obscure cliche niche communities online where i'm thinking kind of furries like oh no were- werewolves are always <laughs> the good guys or jake you be careful you're about guys. to anger the furry listenership we have oh no oh no <laughs> here they come dinosaurs are always the good guys. but like um <laughs> this is um this is in a, a lot of uh, more modern stuff of just taking this flat trope from history and just flipping mm-hmm. it on its head entirely in a way that is often not subtle or interesting in a lot yeah. of ways it's almost subverting or defying a trope can obviously can obviously just kind of um be you know like oh what if this was opposite in a very blundering way um and yep. it can't be very cool but oftentimes you have to handle it with some nuance to make it interesting especially for audiences especially like western audiences that are very familiar with vampires or standard evil bloodsuckers yeah i mean i th- yeah, I think it like using tropes really comes down to the execution more than anything. So yeah, having you you can have you know you can subvert it in the most interesting way possible, and still you know if you don't execute on that implementation, it it can still suck. Yeah, we've talked yeah. about vampires a lot, but I'm thinking of even something like um, let's make goblins these crafty, very kind-hearted you know elf type creatures, um, yeah. and, and you've kind of you've sucked all the flavor out of something that that is familiar and fun um, because now you've essentially just made like hobbits or gnomes, right? Or like, wow, wow kind of makes uh, goblins gnomes. Mm-hmm. Like in almost every way, they're just the, the horde gnomes. 
that yeah. make they're just crafty in like yeah they're just stuff. green gnomes dude <laughs> <laughs> so um so going back to vampires another uh thing you can do to to mess with tropes is aversion um and so averting a trope is basically denying its existence so if say you're playing in D and someone goes like oh is this a vampire and like you as a dungeon master is like a vampire what's that <laughs> this Which is... implies that like vampires are not canon like they're just not a thing this is very scooby-doo where it's like oh there's a vampire that lives in that that cottage on the hill and then, you know, we have assumptions about what that means. And then it turns out it's just, you know, a guy running a smuggling operation. Um, and vampires aren't real because Scooby-Doo is set in the real world, I think. Yeah, yeah. No, I... Um, Except and for this talking can, dogs. This True. can happen a lot. And, and it can uh, oftentimes uh, playing on the meta expectations, like, of the audience. Because they're like, oh, we, we found a murderer in the castle. And they had uh, two... Uh, points of contact in their neck where blood is seeping out mm-hmm. and oh there were bloody footprints leading away and then it and then those footprints disappeared towards the window as if they turned into a bat and it's like <laughs> oh wow it's got to be a vampire and then it ends up not being um and so that's Clever you know, that's that's obviously a a ham-fisted, terrible way to, to handle averting <laughs> the trope of a vampire. But that's an example of, hey, these things aren't canon. Um, and I've dealt with that a lot in my 5e games uh, because uh, I, I ha- you know, I, I, you guys know, play 5e a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and my 5e game has a lot of stuff that's different from, like, the canonic, like, 5e stuff. Like, I do not have Resurrection um for a lot of times i did not have aracocras for a lot of times i did not have uh asmrs um and so when like my players would meet an an npc they would uh, like see someone that would look kind of like that and they'd be like oh is it this i'd be like oh nope sorry and i I would actually like step out of it and be like oh yeah no canonically it's not that because there aren't those right um and it was just you know Something I had to do to be like, oh yeah, I know you you read a lot of like Dungeons and Dragons on Reddit for the five E like D and D stuff, but it's like no, no, in my world, just yeah, it just that's that's not a thing here. Oh, there, we, um, we could have a vast discussion about like why you should not include beast races in your five E game, um, but for now, my comment <laughs> is actually about the Witcher universe, um, which uh, in the case of the uh, the very mysterious and kind of hackneyed. Uh, presentation you had of the vampire that's not really a vampire the the bite marks and the footprints etc um uh-huh. in in the witcher world um which is is fantastical but obviously quite different than most standard fantasy it would probably be something much w- more much worse and uh and much more dangerous than what we would think of as a vampire you know some horrific yeah. creature that is literally like sitting on the the dead bodies of a, a, a village or something um, so aversion yeah, like doesn't always files. mean like, oh, it, it just doesn't exist. It's, maybe it doesn't exist in the way you think it exists, which maybe that's see, closer to subversion. It could be, yeah. And all this is, is just ways of playing with tropes. And I mm-hmm. think that's the, the making of a good dungeon master is playing with tropes, and which is really playing with the handholds that the players have and playing with the expectations that the players have. And I think... Like, expectations, like, setting up expectations for the world, like, is crucial to creating uh-huh. verisimilitude. Because yeah. 
you need to have some expectation of how the world is going to work. And tropes can help set up the world in an interesting way, but it can also keep it interesting by subverting, you know, the very rules that you've set up. Uh, the example yeah. that, so um, if you've seen Avatar, the last airbender and it's uh, it's sister show Korra, um, that's a good example uh-huh. of like, they set up these things and you're like, Oh, this is how the world works. And then something happens and a character does something that, that subverts it in a way that I always found very satisfying. I'm like, wow, you can, um, you could bend things that we didn't know you could bend, let's say, without spoilers. Ah, uh, okay. It, very interesting because I've talked with people who have said that's why they didn't like Legend of Korra is because they took the rules from Lab from uh, Avatar: The Last Airbender and went like, nope, actually this. And hmm. so there is that fine line of when you're building a universe and you want to create your tone and your tropes and like how things work in your world building. And it's like knowing when to break the rules is a trick of the trade that is, is, is hard. And sometimes it won't always be satisfactory to everyone. I think. Yeah. I think some people, some people will be like, that's awesome. And others will be like, are you serious? Wait, we didn't kill the big bad guy and save the day. Like, (laughs) Mm -hmm. I think a lot of it comes down to, you just got to know your audience and know what they want. And oh, in order to let you know have a good game, that, that's what I was um, going to say. <laughs> oh, well, it looks like we're linked <laughs> already. Our binds are becoming one. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, the the last thing for this metaphor is another way to um, use a trope, which is kind of um, th- it's called enforced. Um, and so, if you enforce a trope, it's basically like playing up a trope. It's basically like, okay, this is a core part of the world and it's very much what you expect, right? You want to nail uh, a lot of players. um, So let me give you an example of this. So like if for the vampire example, if you were to enforce or play up the vampire trope, it would be like all vampires are objectively evil, speak in an Eastern European accent and are all essentially evil Dracula. Um, and (laughs) this may seem like this kind of hackney foolish thing to do, but, um, I've actually found in a lot of D and D recently, um, this can actually be an effective tool occasionally because players are so used to tropes being subverted or defied or downplayed to the point that they almost in, to go back to my rock climbing metaphor, don't trust the handholds. Hmm. And if they don't trust their handholds, they're always going to be like, oh, clearly this type of vampire will be different. Like, oh, oh, this vampire will probably be a good guy or whatever. Um, It's just a hot dog in a mohair sweater. Come on. (laughs) 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 But occasionally it is good to enforce a trope and be like, no, 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 no. Like this vampires are evil. Like they do want to kill you. They do want to drink your blood. Um, they are harmed by sunlight um, because players, especially more experienced players that have been inundated by fantasy RPGs, whether it's tabletop or, or video games, um, they have had so many different versions of tropes um, that have just bounced around in their brains that it is occasionally refreshing to go back and enforce an old trope and play it up and be like, no, this, no, these vampires are objectively bad. And you don't have to feel bad for killing them, and they are going to try to kill you and drain you of all your blood. 
there is something satisfying about that. Um, so I was a big WoW player, and they obviously subvert a lot of tropes, like with the uh, the noble orcs instead of the savage beasts, and, and as we mentioned, yeah. the goblins, etc. Um, and after a while, living in the high fantasy kind of world, going back to just um, a bunch of muddy children monsters living in a jungle um, is kind of ref- <laughs> um, maybe not refreshing, but it's familiar and comforting. Yeah. And, and like, I, I think there's a lot of, um, especially new dungeon masters who have seen so much and have experienced so many different stories from so many different types of fantasy and sci-fi genres that, like, they feel bad for, like, doing traditional stuff. And it's like, <laughs> no. Like, occasionally there is just a princess that is, like, held captive by a dragon. Like, occasionally, that's just a thing that you're allowed to do, and it isn't, like, cheap. Like, all your players are going to get it, but they're they're so inundated with all these different type of stories that I, probably they're not going to roll their eyes, and they're going to be like, oh, sweet! A straightforward quest for once. Right, we don't yeah, need sometimes, all the twists and turns. Sometimes, like, making things too convoluted can, you know, I don't know cause disinterest, and, maybe, like... There can be joy in finding, you know, like a simple, something simple and satisfying. It makes me think yeah. of a, a story I heard one time from my older sister. Um, who, she, she played a and d game with someone. And in this guy's game, every NPC was a lying piece of crap who was trying to, like, <laughs> manipulate and kill the players. Like, without fail. Uh-huh. Um, and... I guess as far as tropes go, it was extremely predictable and really boring for the players who were just like, great, like, how's this guy going to try to screw us? There's just no variety at all. So I think, um, yeah, yeah, it's important to, to mix up certain things, um, whether you're making the hunchback be, um, you know, the gentle, kind person or really just making them an awful creature <laughs> after years of, of being kicked. Yeah. And so I think for me, I can echo that entirely because, Tropes are these universal storytelling hooks that are, you know, omnipresent in every story, but they're also created by you as the dungeon master because you have that authority to, like, give the tone and the the setting and the environment. Um, and so, yeah, you have to be careful to not let like like you need to know that everything you establish about your world and about how the players interact with it remains consistent because um i i had trouble with this i had um in my first game uh it was a star wars rpg um that i played i played with you guys as a player and loved it the uh fantasy flight one Mm -hmm. and so that was the first game i played uh when i went to college and i was the dungeon master this time and um we had this incredible, like, early, um, like, like the whole campaign was incredible. But one of their their characters, who was the pilot, who, because none of them had picked their piloting skill, I just created an NPC to be their pilot. Um, and he ended up betraying them. Oh. And it was just incredibly brutal for the players. Like, just, they were so pissed off. And <laughs> I loved it. I was like, okay, that was a great betrayal. But then... I said, okay, this new game just came out. It's called Dungeons & Dragons 5th Edition. Oh, uh, 2014. Let's, let's try this about. Yeah, this is literally 2014. And so uh, we started playing D&D 5e. Um, it was great. Um, but I introduced uh, some several new NPCs. Uh, and the players did not trust any of them. Hmm. And I was thinking, like, why? Like, I'm making this guy the most delightful 
little Irish bartender friend ever. Like, what the, What am I doing wrong? And then I realized, oh, the only NPC they knew was one that betrayed them. Oh, you so broke they your just heart. assumed that J- all of Jake's friendly, delightful NPCs are evil. Which they are. But I had to realize that I had set that tone for my players. Um, and it, like, it, it took um, a lot of essentially trust building to get back out of that hole. Um, but it was really interesting to be like, okay, yeah, like once you set a tone of like, oh, this is what new cities are like, or this is what new NPCs are like, or this is what uh, whatever, like the players will get used to that and they will trust you. And so you have to kind of use that trust to like give them handholds, give them tropes, give them familiar things so they don't get lost and they trust you and trust like the hooks that you put in front of them. (laughs) So Jake, Mm -hmm. what you're essentially saying is that you are trying to build trust with your players so they don't expect it when you backstab them again with okay. another NPC. Okay. <laughs> That's I mean, all no, I'm like hearing. Of, He's not of far like off. hearing the baby, like a baby crying in the other room. <laughs> and then you walk in and it's just a monster every time. And Aww. then so eventually there's going to be a baby crying that's going to die because you thought it was a monster. It's just, it's the whole boy who cried wolf over and over. It is. It yes. is. And, and I, you I, are the wolf and the boy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I am both. I am the wolf from the boy. I am the DM who cried DM. Well, um, this is <laughs> very interesting. Um, so let, we're talking already about using tropes. Um, so what are some of the uh, character assumptions and expectations of a fantasy game for D&D? Ooh, fun. So fa- fantasy, I guess, for me, I immediately think medieval. Hmm. True. Like, right, which is funny because a lot of people then, like, don't know what medieval really means. No. I mean, yeah, I would guess most people don't know what it <laughs> I mean, it's like, um, like, you know, this, this um, what's a word um, when you have technology that's out of place for its time? Anachronistic? Yes. Uh, so many anachronisms existing in your, your game, like reading oh, glasses yeah. and everybody reads and, and writes. Yep. Um, anyway, yep. go, go ahead. Literacy. And then the, the ships in the harbor all are lined with uh, cannons, despite <laughs> right. like no one having... Yeah. So no. So this is almost a weird trope that has infected D and D and become ingrained in D and D. That it's almost reverse engineered, like what people think of medieval. Hmm. Like people think of medieval almost in fantasy terms. Yeah, actually, <laughs> <laughs> which is wild. Um, but like the medieval period, starting in what eight hundred A.D. to like. <sighs> 1350 ad like there's so much variance there that and obviously the creators of DD and i mean just all fantasy role players in general um they're playing in different eras and it has become this weird amalgamation of what fantasy is and it's kind of ended up in this high king arthur style chivalric weird thing which is wild i've heard somebody describe um the DD worlds as um, pop culture digesting itself. Maybe it was Jim Davis from <laughs> WebDM, where it's like no one can ever even tell anymore. Like where the the fiction uh, that sort of inspired Gygax and Arneson begins, and where the historical aspects end. Um, it, yes, it's like an Ouroboros. It is become like yeah. mythologized almost. Yep. Yeah, and and I think that D and D even as an idea. Uh, 
is is now a loaded concept because we think of the Forgotten Realms and and whatever Arakakra and um, now all the the things that fifth fifth edition has done with the game. Yeah, so I, I would think though that this weird Ouroboros of history and fantasy eating itself um, <laughs> has created a pretty stable version of what what Dungeons and Dragons is for. Uh, mostly everyone, yeah. right? Like if I got anyone and it was like, okay, you are defending a cart that is carried by four horses um, and you are going to the nearby castle. Um, you guys are defending this cart filled with grain and 12 ingots of gold. Um, <laughs> and it is attacked by six goblins. And one of the goblins is is riding a, a baby red dragon. Oh, like all, all of right. that. My handhold is into... definitely slipping. <laughs> <laughs> so like, but like all of that fits into like, oh, this is D&D. Like no one would be like, what? Like, I don't know. Like that's <laughs> the red dragon, just... baby. <laughs> yeah. It, and then it, one it's... of the goblins is a chef. His name is Steve. And he oh, right. I'm cutting you off right now. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so I guess um, it is good to know that there is that consistency with tropes. Um, especially with settings and especially with the standard D and D setting, mm -hmm. but that gives us a lot of room to mess around. Um, yeah. And yeah. Li like I've said, like we've all said from the beginning of this freaking podcast is you have to know your players. You have to know what their experience is with both tabletop games and with fantasy, because if you're playing a game with children who are unfamiliar, maybe haven't even seen Lord of the Rings, then you're essentially teaching them the tropes. If yeah. you're playing the game with like teenagers, um, who most of them maybe haven't, you know, played World of Warcraft their whole lives or, or really gotten into fantasy stuff, then you're going to kind of lean into the tropes. Yeah. And then if you get into your 20s and you have a bunch of cynical people who have been playing video games and board games their whole lives, then maybe you're going to have those tropes that they know and you're going to divert away from them. Yeah. That's, so it that's just really depends on your audience. I think that, okay, let me say it this way. I have run D and D for lots of people who have never played before. And in my experience, it looks, or it seems that new players want that quintessential D and D experience. They don't yes. want subverted tropes. They are here to yes. shoot a goblin with an arrow, cast a magic missile, go into a dungeon, maybe even see a dragon. Yes. Like, and any subversion of that is going to be really annoying or even frustrating for them. Like you would not put that group of players into dark sun or, um, or any other like kind of out there setting like, um, planescape, like, don't do that. That's my advice. A hundred percent. Unless like this group of fantasy writers, this jaded uh, young adult group who's like, they, they can take apart a story to the, the, what do they say? They can strip it down to the studs. To the yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> um, they're the, the more of an audience that would want to see, um, uh, what are they called? Hobbits who are bloodthirsty, greedy, monstrous little creatures like they are in yeah Dark Sun. playing on uh, a planet with six moons half of them inhabited where you all breathe <laughs> it's strange you know like there there are ways to if you want to strip everything and just be like okay there's you can drop all of the tropes that anyone has ever heard of from storytelling in general mm -hmm. and suddenly you find yourself in the most alien world 
that nothing makes sense. Yeah. And like, that, like people ugh. are that the currency is blood and people uh, have <laughs> well, to I mean, do backflips. The concept of currency like, is kind of a trope. Yeah, um, no, literally, so it's, it's impossible like... to tell a story. I think it's impossible to exist in any human constructed universe um, without tropes. I, 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 there, there was a short story I read um, in in college, and it was like an experimental kind of like goofy thing where it it was uh, it told the story from the perspective of a realistic alien that was based in a silicon based chemistry on a foreign planet and it described its day and nothing made sense and and it was and it was really cool because none of it made sense it was like there's no story here there's no arc i can't tell if it's going to the bathroom or if it's eating i can't tell if it's a he or (laughs) she i can't tell if it's uh if that's its parents or its kids i can't tell if it's if the interacting with living or dead things and it blew my mind because it was like, oh, yeah, all of stories require human constructs. It, by definition, tropes. Not a single handhold to be seen. Exactly. In that story. It was You're like just... like a, it was like a rock climber looking like at a, a jet black smooth wall. <laughs> <laughs> and and it was it was delightful because it was like, oh, now I get why I like stories is because there are a, a million little relatable hooks. Uh, several in each sentence even. Right. And with that, there's nothing. And so I think a lot of, a lot of dungeon masters, a lot of young dungeon masters want to make their world the the next most creative, interesting, wild, different world. But it's like a lot of not dungeon masters, but players, young, new, interested players want standard 5e they want to look at the castle they want to shoot the goblin with their longbow they want to you know attack the dragon in the dungeon mm-hmm. and that's fine that's good it is it's very acceptable in fact um maybe there's a spectrum i don't know if if any other internet thinkers have have drawn this out of like familiarity and fantasy and, and plotting different stories along that line uh. with like the most familiar being something like literally um alice in wonderland or or peter pan like oh. basically fairy tales yeah. yeah um getting along to lord of the rings and then something really out there where you have like i have no mouth and yet i must scream where you've got reality being um just ripped apart and uh i would love that xy graph <laughs> right somebody somebody make that and and while you're at it um just clip out every time we say the word trope in this episode i want to see how many times we do it oh no oh hell yeah <laughs> <laughs> But so so um, we talked about like being consistent with tropes, uh, not being not being wary to use old fashioned tropes or tropes that you know are an immediate storytelling shorthand for your players. Um, but at the same time, there can be an overuse of tropes where the players like, oh, OK, let me guess. Uh, oh, the princess is in another castle <laughs> or, you know, like where, where they're just like, OK. Oh, another um, evil overlord. <laughs> yeah, and there's like a, too many big bads, too many MacGuffins, too many uh, get several pieces of this key, and, and the players can feel infantilized by that. Hmm. Nice usage. Um, again, I would I would tell player or dungeon masters to lean into tropes, um, but to know your audience enough to be like, okay, are they ready for t- twists and turns? Are they ready for? crazy 
you know, deconstructions of these these standard tropes? Or do they want to to rescue a princess in a castle? Well, let's talk about enhancing popular D&D tropes. Uh, what is the yes. most common, the first trope you think of with Dungeons & Dragons? Uh, it's got to be, okay, it, it's got to be you start in a tavern. <laughs> yeah. Which yeah. is great. Which, which, like, I have... I have done much research into getting like the perfect start of a D&D session and I've gotten some good ones. But I mean this one is just if I have a new group of players like coworkers or like friends uh like sp- spouses or uh partners of friends that haven't necessarily played before like starting in a tavern is just it's just so good. Yeah. And I know a lot of people are like how do I start the game I don't want it to be in a tavern, but it's like, man, it's still so good. It is. Um, I, there's just a lot more conversation I feel like we could have um, about just this one part about like how to start a game. Because I've seen some really hot starts. Like, you know, you're being paddled out to sea. Uh, you're tied up and you're about to be drowned or whatever. You know, there's, yeah. there's great ways to start a D&D game. But I think, as we've talked about before, certain players are looking for a very specific D&D experience, especially new yes. ones or, or young players even. Um, maybe, let's just say inexperienced players. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like I'm just reiterating the same thing. Um, and when, when you have a group of advanced players, I wonder if they would even be wanting to play D&D. Like they might be playing something crazy like, um, oh my gosh, uh, Monty Cook's game that comes in a giant cube based <laughs> around reality bending. That game has some really <laughs> tough handholds, let me tell you. Yeah. Yeah. Invisible so, sun, <laughs> non-Euclidean geometry for sure. I think I think the you start in a tavern might be one of my favorite tropes for D and D because I think there's something weirdly like relatable at it about it. Like it's it, it kind of calls upon um, a very familiar way of like meeting people. Like most of the time yeah. when you meet strangers, it's like it's like over like a meal of some kind. Like you're at a friend's house and you know. You share a food or a drink or something like that. Or if you go to a bar, you always see that, you know, the weird group in the corner that's like the VIP is like, oh, what what are they doing there? And it's like, <laughs> it's like, it's like giving you a way to explore all of the different things that you might observe in the real world in, you know, in terms of like a game. So yeah. you're kind of like living vicariously through this, like. Yeah, I wonder what would happen if, you know, that person, you know, and the VIP called me over. Like, I wonder what they would want. And it's like, in, in like, you know, the tavern, it might be, you know, the the wealthy, like, uh, person who's throwing a party, like, wants to speak with you for some reason. It's like, that's, you know, I think everybody has, like, lived at some point and had, you know, fantasies of, like, what what would happen if, you know, X scenario. And I think it just makes it very relatable, but also in a... Like, it also engages you into, like, the the world as well. Into, you know, you are in a tavern. It's not, you know, your run-of-the-mill, like, dive bar, I guess. Interesting, David. It feels like you hit on the observation that um, a tavern, or I guess maybe a restaurant, uh, depending on if you're lame, um, (laughs) is is like the perfect tutorial zone for D&D because it, it yep. utilizes all the things people yes. already know how to do, which is like, I, I know how to, I know what food is. I know what talking to people looks like. I know what a restaurant or a bar looks like. Um, yep. 
And so it's sort yeah, of like... Yeah, there's no, there's no swinging swords from the beginning. There's no spell casting from the beginning. It's like... You're, it's yeah, an easy you're, starting you're, place, yeah. You're yes. at an inn. <laughs> yeah. And I think that it also helps... Um, even if your campaign went really weird and and sort of sort of as you climb higher, there's fewer handholds. You know, it gets more abstract and strange, mm-hmm. um, which I think that the five E actually kind of does as you get up to twentieth level, where uh, re- you are rending reality with uh, with every action. Yes. Um, and and looking back at that humble beginning in a very normal tavern, um, with a conversation between friends to see sort of how to juxtapose really how the game has changed. Yeah. Dude, do you know how many on the D&D subreddit, how many adventuring parties have gone back and bought the tavern that they started in? I love that. Yeah. Like, that is a really common thing. Yeah. That's a trope in and of itself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. it's, a, it's, a, it's a young sprouting trope. But I, I, think the tavern, I think the tavern is great because um, you want the players, like as a dungeon master, you want to establish the players and put them in positions where there's, there's hooks all over. Um, you don't want to put them on like a flat white plane where they can go north, south, east, or west. Like you want them to be interesting things in all directions. And that's why a tavern is perfect for that. There's the bartender who's sure to have a lot of knowledge of the town. There's all of the different other guests in the tavern. Um, there's surely to be like wanted posters with various bounties and news there's just there's just oh there's so much stuff in a tavern that's like inherent that you don't really have to yeah the players are not going to get lost and be like oh what now dm i don't know what to do <laughs> i i i kind of think of it like it's almost like uh, someone who's moved away coming back to their hometown like things have changed and things might be different but they're still kind of you know a, a lot of the same people you, you kind of know where things are and where to get things and you know at its core you know it's still that you're you're familiar with it but things might be a little different so it, yeah yeah so okay let's do a few more lightning round for okay. these are popular D tropes how would you enhance them or or switch them up so we just expressed our love for the tavern but let's move into other ones and so these are just standard staples of D. what would you do to make them pop so the next one is an evil dragon guarding a horde of gold. Oh, well, the first thing that came to my mind is um, the dragon is undead, controlled by a necromancer somewhere else. Oh, or that's, that's it is, fun. It's a good dragon giving out gold. <laughs> so, I mean, both, both, okay, a little shrucky, but it's good. Both of those are great. We just, we just, hold on. We just, <laughs> we just, uh, subverted and <laughs> and downplayed the, the trope there oh, give us another man. one Jake. no I, I so okay uh here's another one that's kind of a staple uh the medieval setting the medieval time period oh Would okay i spice it up i have two um the first is really straightforward um just research the actual medieval period and make that your setting and you'll see handholds rapidly disappear oh my god a thousand percent you'll realize <laughs> oh i'm thinking of the high renaissance i'm not thinking of the medieval period. exactly and um, oh their lives are a lot different i heard a guy on a podcast talking about um i forget the name of his setting that is like purely um medieval or, or even earlier uh time period and he says the word superstitious does not exist there's no line between reality and and belief um yeah like there's there's simply no way, and people don't think that way. And I thought, 
oh my gosh, like we have the benefits of this this 20th century education. Yes. That, um, so uh, another um, another one, let, let's try to spice this one up. So this is uh, we I've used this term throughout this podcast, but especially even in this episode, uh, the MacGuffin. Um, what would you do to spice? Well, I guess we should uh, define the MacGuffin. The MacGuffin is basically like this this one small magical key artifact orb that is like central to, you know, it has to be thrown into a volcano or it has to be delivered to the king or it has to be uh, placed in this amulet in order to save the world or stop the bad guy. Oh, I'm going to um, last So what do you think this. about spicing up this, this, uh, this trope of the MacGuffin? I'm definitely going last because I got an idea that's going to blow your socks off. All right, David. Okay, my favorite way to subvert this is it's just whenever they find it, it's just a note that says the real MacGuffin was the friends that we made along the way. <laughs> so I'm so disappointed. Can I unsubscribe <laughs> no, from this? Campaign? That's when. No, I can imagine David sitting with his closest friends, which is not me now, uh, <laughs> around the table. And and David says this, and they all stand up and leave, never to talk to David again. <laughs> Without a word. Without a word. Him. They just silently gather their things. And David is sat, like, he's just still there behind the D&D, the Dungeon Master screen with the wizard's hat on. And the, the lights turn out. Tear. <laughs> okay, um, my idea is a little less silly, hopefully. Um, okay. my, my subversion is, um, the lost MacGuffin is actually, not only is it found, it's already in your possession and other people are coming to take it from you. So the game becomes, how do you stop people from taking it? Oh, oh, I love that. Mm-hmm. It becomes more of a defensive game instead of like a, oh, that's really good because D and D is on its nose, like a, an adventuring game of like, mm-hmm. okay, where do you venture out into? But this makes the stakes really high and makes it a little more action packed because they're after you, they're and like you can't, you, you can't like choose your. See, this is something that I think needs to be uh, imbued into standard D and D a lot more. Is like no, they're after you. They're like almost making sessions have more like quick time events <laughs> okay, as opposed to just have. No, no, like, as opposed to people, like, sitting there planning a heist for, like, three sessions. Oh, yeah, like, how do you respond when when a group of people have been planning a heist against you for months? Yeah, like, you have to be more reactive Mm. as opposed to kind of the analysis paralysis of, like, trying to determine the best course of adventure, you know? That's fun. That's real fun. Yeah. Uh, Okay, last one. Last lightning round. So, a lot of D&D settings have kind of this inherent tomb raiding part of it. Um, which always assumes that there was a prior high society that collapsed. And for, like a real world metaphor, obviously, for that is the Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, what would you do to kind of spice up that trope of like, oh, there there used to be, you know, the gods or, or, or hyper archmages that did all sorts of stuff, but then now they don't. Like, like what um, what's a, what's a fun twist or, or turn you've thought of that? Instead of raiding tombs you're trying to put back ancient artifacts where they belong <laughs> sure. okay. oh, David, you David plagiarizer a complete subversion just <laughs> <laughs> the tomb you're trying to put the, the opposite back. no what's no 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 no, no. here's Maybe. the deal here's the deal this is an actual thing that's been used before because remember pirates of the caribbean 
instead of taking the treasure, they had to put it back because they had to get all the pieces and put it oh. back. This is, this is an actual, like, this is a thing. So David said, David said, no, I'm not stupid. I'm copying. <laughs> and then he said, I'm really copying. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, I have another one as well. If you, if... Oh, yeah. I don't, I don't have, I have um, a setting. So. That- I'll talk about so, but so the, the tombs that oh, you're yes. raiding are, are from the future actually so it's like it's from a collapse like when after civilization collapses in the future oh that's interesting so no, it's like that, time that's, bandits yeah or so it's like I, a cyclical I, that world kinda, or something or that kind of relates to this might be some minor spoilers for uh, the critical role campaign but um, Matt's you know pre you know, high society or whatever, um, majocracy or whatever, um, had like these flying cities and, you know, they crashed when everything went wrong. Um, and apparently in those crashed cities are pockets of time where the people in them don't realize stuff went wrong. Hmm. And so it's kind of like this weird kind of time travel thing of like, Oh, they're going to interact with these people, you know, in basically a crashed spaceship in the snow, but there's pockets of it where the people are like living great lives and gardens because they're just like living because it like, yeah. And, and so little things like that, where it like gives you a legitimate taste of like the pre high society world could be pretty cool. I think hmm. that's so interesting. Um, so this is sort of a tan tangent on your tomb rating trope. Um, it's a uh, campaign setting. I saw first on Reddit and then, um, they did a Kickstarter, I think, I, I, and I don't know the name of it, so you know they're not paying me. Um, but the idea is that druids have sort of won, or they won hundreds of years ago, and the entire planet is completely forest. Um, densely oh. packed, very deep forest. And so uh, cities are built like on the tops of mountains, and they have these boats that just skim along the tops of trees. They're like these giant <gasps> saw blade, like awesome. propelled boats. And then uh, the tomb rating is uh, you drive out to like across the the wooden sea or whatever they call it, and you dive down uh, into under the canopy, and there's like all kinds of weird stuff living there. Oh my gosh, I'm stealing so much of that. Okay, uh, I gotta yeah, cut this. So if I could think so of the weird. name, I would give it. <laughs> that's so. It's that's so awesome. good. So good. I think we've fully discussed everything about tropes. Um, so, yeah. would you please join me inside the question vault? Welcome to the question <laughs> vault. Every week, well, sometimes, uh, sometimes we answer one of your questions. This week's question from Matt P asks, how do you resist the urge to metagame at the table? Jake, I'll let you go first because that you'll get the 5e answer and I'm going to give the really annoying and unwanted OSR answer. What am I going to Oh get? my god. Uh, David, you're going to give... The I, best answer. So yeah. start Try writing notes. your best. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I'm guessing I don't want to. I'm guessing Will is going to be like, "There's no such thing as metagaming because your your player and the character are not or are the same thing." Which I'm going to hard disagree. <laughs> you don't know. You're, you're disagreeing problem. with a conceptual I am. assertion. I, 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 I talk about a straw man. man. Do you want me to go first okay, and actually so, so. you disagree? Let me hear this thing. This is me. I'm picking up the scarecrow and I'm placing it in the cornfield behind me. Mr. Shapiro, when did you get here? (laughs) So, okay. Okay. So, in my opinion, this is a a really valid question because metagaming, 
for me is something that does take a bit of skill. Um, I, I've played with players who, I don't know, I, I guess it depends on their age, where they'll like know that the big bad has betrayed their friend, but their character doesn't know that, but they, like they still take off sprinting towards them to attack them, and it's like, well, your character wouldn't know that. Um, and so I think a lot of this, and this is hard because this is from what appears to be a player's perspective, mm-hmm. but it could be from a dungeon master's perspective as well. Um, from a dungeon master's perspective, I would say in order to avoid metagaming, play to the intelligence of the monsters that you're portraying, which is, um, most of the time the, the bugbears or whatever that are attacking your players are dumber than what you think. But most of the time, the arch villains and arch mages and the hardcore evil, big, bad, like hardcore bosses are smarter than what you think. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I would say in general, play down the the smaller goblins, bugbears, uh, and wildlife, but play up the, like, really make the most intelligent decision. We talked about this in an earlier episode, like, having David as almost an assistant dungeon master because he's, he's playing the big bad, mm-hmm. like, as a player character who's legitimately trying to kill the players. Yeah. Um, and when you play that way... It makes it insanely different. Like when you're not playing it as this like, you know, uh, story. Like if you take the storytelling out of it, which hurts my heart to do. But I have been doing this more and more. Has been playing the dice exactly how they are. Not fudging the dice. um, And really taking the intelligence of the monsters I'm controlling to heart. Um, It has upped the ante on the combat. And has made it really, really interesting. Um, I guess as a dungeon master, it's hard to get the player's perspective. I have been blessed with players who've been very good about not metagaming because they have been just, okay, I'm going to do this and it hurts my heart because I know what's happening behind the scenes, but this is what my character would do with what he knows. And so I've been really blessed with that. I I feel like I've been decent at that when I'm a player because I know the dungeon master kind of behind the scenes, behind the screen stuff um but yeah i think it is a hard question for people that play 5e or more character based story driven games so i'm Mm. gonna hand it over to to you guys now oh david go ahead i guess my assumption is like if you're wanting to metagame that automatically means like you're wanting a specific outcome to to happen so I guess my question would be, it'd be a question in return. It'd be, why why do you want this specific outcome to happen? Wow. So if you're metagaming, usually it's because you either like want to win the encounter or um, you want a specific, you know, story element to happen. And I guess you got to ask, I guess the question would be, why do you feel the need to make, to, to force this kind of thing to happen? Well, that, that seems like it would be like because I don't want my friend's characters to die. Um, like, like there is okay, well, if you're, like, if you're emotional urge. I mean, to, I think I think there's a difference win. between um, like that kind of metagaming and like like kind of knowing the like events like, oh, like I know how like these dungeons work. So I know how to like like solve this puzzle like easily, I guess, in a sense. I think there's like oh, a. Oh, interesting. I think there's like there's like a I think it comes down to like what I guess the motivation and like figuring out like 
why do you need to like win an encounter in order to have fun? And I think that like trying to find fun in different ways other than like winning in D and D or making a certain thing happen if you're the dungeon master. It's, okay, I, I gotta say something, David. It sounds like you're talking about min maxing. Yeah, not meta gaming is... because like meta gaming to me is like okay the uh the the big bad vampire since we have that theme for yeah. this episode uh switches places with the paladin and so mm-hmm. suddenly the paladin's character who's like at half health looks like the big bad mm. and like and the vampire looks like the paladin sure. and th- th- that happened because the paladin failed a spell save and everyone at the table knows that mm-hmm. and so basically it's like how do you resist the urge not to attack the paladin because you know that the, the paladin is actually the vampire I guess my point would be that if you feel the need to like not if you feel the need to like win an encounter over you know like trying to roleplay you might want to try to like consider like being more aware of the you know needing to win desire and trying to make that more prevalent rather than or trying to acknowledge it over you know trying to you know roleplay and make an, have an interesting story instead so I, I think it really comes down to like but what you prioritize in a game. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm very interested to see what <laughs> what Will says. Uh, yeah, so there's there's some tools you have in, in 5e to uh, minimize this if you are um, a dungeon master. I guess I have both answers here. Um, if you're metagaming to like win a combat as a dungeon master, you're like, oh, I know the, the cleric has low health and, and a low save in this category, so I'm just going to nuke them and kill them. Um I, I mean, that's obviously, I think, pretty crappy as a GM to try to kill your players in ways that feel unfair and unfun. Um, and I guarantee your players will complain because you'll notice that players are allowed to metagame and the GM is not. Like, there's this unspoken rule at the table because you'll get called out. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that's because the players are the good guys. It'd be like if the, the, he, or the, the villain in the Bond movie just shoots James Bond in the head instead of capturing him and putting him into an elaborate death trap and leaving. <laughs> We want to see Bond escape. Um, as for yeah. players resisting the urge, um, I guess my my advice still comes down to like GM advice of there needs to be a cost to that knowledge. Um, like in the instance of your paladin swapping bodies with your your demon or your vampire, um, characters got to make a really high roll, like some kind of perception or or a saving throw to realize that. So even though the players know, like their their characters cannot act on that knowledge until some mechanical uh, milestone ah. achieved so um, it kind of confronts min maxers of being like nope like you'd be like okay inherently you wouldn't know that they're like okay i would do it anyway it's like, okay well roll now right it's like, like this extra layer yeah you have to I'm doubt just the gonna illusion, shoot my right? friend because i know he's a, a jerk <laughs> yeah right like <laughs> just but as far as players like if you're playing and you want a metagame um i guess i think dave already answered that part best like why do you want to do that if you're if you're just trying to win at D, um Honestly, you, you might be better served with a different game or even a video game that supports exactly, like the yeah. level of min-maxing and meta-knowledge. Because in a video game, um, you have wikis, you have the, the entire fountain of human knowledge at your fingertips and, to and, win. And the dungeon master would know if that's the type of player to not do that weird switcheroo spell on a group that is basically playing the game like Doom Eternal. <laughs> right. And so, like, what I was going to say for the OSR thing is um, information was so powerful in my last game, my OSR game. 
um, where but I basically players had to to buy it like or or they spend either time or money and so there's players who would say for uh. this week because it ran in real time remember um, I'm gonna be at the library just researching anything anyone has ever heard about this one thing and then at the end of the yeah. week I'm like okay like here's what you learned um, or somebody's like I'm gonna spend all my money to like hire a person to go. Uh, like in David's case, um, go like scout this this part of the the territory for whatever he's looking for. Sure. Um, and so in that case, I didn't mind giving away information because they had paid for it in some form or fashion. Um, yeah. And, and because, of course, my game is more like a, a board game in a lot of ways. Like the players are going to use every resource at their disposal to win. And that's expected. So then the question becomes, well, how do you make them really pay for it? Everything yeah. comes at a cost. <laughs> no, that that's good. I love it. Yeah, metagame requires knowledge. And you can, as a dungeon master, you get to kind of determine the cost of that knowledge. Yeah. So, like, if they want to, let's say, um, player, most players of D&D 5e these days know a lot about monster manual monsters, standard monsters. Yeah. Um, and they know their weaknesses, their attacks, everything about like them. Like the troll on fire. Right, yeah. exactly. Like... Um, and so wh- whether that comes down to a skill check to to figure that out for a character um, or you allow them to know that by just spending some amount of, of a resource, like spend a spell slot and now you will know how to kill this thing that you already know. Uh, or like a level of exhaustion yeah. or, yeah. That way absolutely. it's just a simple, like, th- yeah, it's a trade-off. Ah, uh, yeah. That's great. Yeah, I, I've seen people do that with like monsters of like, uh yeah you can spend your entire turn um I, I don't know if that's a feat or something but like you can spend your entire turn like just uh analyzing them mm-hmm. and then the dungeon master gives you like random uh pieces like stats from the monster manual right that you would like know that's um, fun. I, I i think that was a a thing you get if you bought the actual volo's guide to monsters in tomb mm-hmm. annihilation uh from volo himself <laughs> uh you could get advantage on like analyzing monsters that you see for because you have the guide mm-hmm. <laughs> which is weird fun little metagaming thing <laughs> i remember that all right well matt i hope that helps we gave you a bunch of different perspectives uh from the angle of pcs and from the dungeon master and from just our weird different tables so i hope that helps <laughs> Thank you for listening to Vox Arcana, episode 67. I'm William. I'm Jake. And I'm David. We'll see you next time.